Hey, Siko. So, I was thinking today, do you remember when was the last physical event that uh, you attended? I, yeah, I went to the podcast festival in September, but that was like with 10 people or something because they just uh, changed the rules again. But I think before that, I actually went to uh, like the goodbye party of somebody who was the president of a hogeschool in uh, Nijmegen. And uh, Hubert Bruls, the chair of the Veiligheidsregio, was actually giving a speech there for more than 50 people. <laughs> and when was that? <laughs> Do you remember the date? Uh, the, the day we had the uh, the rule that no more than 50 people could convene. And then mm. a couple of days after we had the big lockdown where everything went uh, closed mm. over the course of an hour, I think, on a Sunday. Yeah, wow. it was really, really radical. It's almost a year uh, or more than a year. I remember it was actually also 5 of March. That was the last one. It was the Pathways to Sustainability Conference. I even had a mm. you know, small uh, appearance on the stage. And it was one of the beginning uh, moments that people started to realize that uh, things going to be different. So people were giving elbows instead of yeah. Yeah, shaking yeah. hands. And But I mean, it still was totally different vibe. Nobody would have expected this. But a year on and we are still recording this podcast from our home. Welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. It reminds me always like Buzz Aldrin in Toy Story. Is that Buzz Aldrin? <laughs> That's Buzz Lightyear, I think. <laughs> Coming up, Rens van der Schoot, professor of statistics for small datasets at Utrecht University and one of the project leaders for automated systematic re text review by using deep learning and active learning will tell us about his project in this show. Really looking forward to that. This guy is all over the internet, man. Yeah, he now even has a TV show about uh, yeah. the AS review. This is getting out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> Psycho, have you ever tried to find, you know, a very specific part of literature in, you know, a very general topic? Oh man, I remember this vividly from my PhD, which I started in 2012, and there were not that many tools around for automated uh, systematic review. I just remember having huge stacks of paper on my desk and then uh, just usually finding out that I only needed seven sentences from a certain paper just to get further in my uh, little little quest. This, uh, this was a tiresome process. I, that's what I remember. <laughs> Yeah, you had to read papers and sometimes you could even print them. I think that was just the beginning of Google Scholar. And at that time, yeah, everybody yeah, was very using ISI Thompson, uh, which was very expensive and not everybody had access to it. So the Google Scholar was quite an achievement and uh, opened a lot of doors. But after some point, it also became the default way of people ranking the papers. So yeah. you search terms, comes 20 or sometimes 50 pages of articles probably go from the first or second page you never know what you miss so stays a very big question how to find the right information and the articles and how not to miss one it, the literature is just growing and growing how do people in other fields do that do you know well i think it's the the, the like the systematic review stems from the medical field and uh, the other fields have learned from it and used uh, similar methods. But uh, I'm not really sure uh, whether it's really penetrated to every field of, of science and humanities right now. What does it actually mean, systematic review? Does it mean that you, know, you do it according to the protocol? 
or what yeah, is it? you do it according to a, syst- a system. <laughs> okay, and and not in the, the like the, the the grab and go method that I used to use when I was a PhD. But with you now a million articles being published a year, uh, is it really doable? Well, the 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 problem that we now know is that uh, like forty percent of those million articles don't even get read by anybody, right? These were these alarming figures that came out a couple of years ago. So this is really a problem that we haven't been able to solve yet. Yeah. So you never know what you miss, but maybe the guest of this episode will help us find a way out. Yes. But first, uh, let's talk about the news. What have you been up to? Sico in the past months? Uh, well, I've been on leave for a couple of weeks because we recently had a baby. Congratulations, Sico. Thank you. I'm now the father of children, which sounds really, really strange when you say it out loud. So that's been keeping me busy. But right before, uh, I actually was teaching. And that's been, it's been a long time, a bit like five or six years ago that I taught for the last time. And uh, I was teaching in the Graduate School of Life Sciences in a course on open science. Oh, fantastic. There's a course on yeah. open science. Yes, yes. Uh, this was the first time around, and we're actually discussing with other graduate schools in Utrecht whether they also want to take up our study materials and maybe part of our course. And we're probably going to uh, give the course again in the autumn. Uh, this is within the Graduate School of Life Sciences, but maybe it will spread like an oil, uh, oil spill all over university. And we're going to try to open up our educational resources like our presentations and maybe even the videos and uh, other materials through FigShare, which uh, the university uses uh, as a platform for you to share your uh, educational resource. And um, yeah, it was really, it was such a lot of fun. What I really like about teaching is that it always forces you as a teacher to rethink your assumptions and uh, make new categorizations, pose new questions and um, and this was a course that uh, really was very interactive. So it, it was incredibly, it gave me a lot of energy. Oh, I have been to small workshops of like half a day, one day, two days, sometimes a week uh, on open science, but a full course, that's very yeah, interesting. Well, full course, it, it was 10 days in total, but it's part of a larger minor uh, life sciences and society where there's also ethics and integrity and, uh, and, and stakeholders. So that's a lot of different topics. And uh, with uh, me, Frank Miedema, Luc uh, Brinkman and Martijn van der Meer took the, uh, took, uh, together also with Jeroen Bosman and Bianca Kramer took part in the, uh, the open science uh, section okay. of this. Oh, that's great. Our education director is actually very interested in having an open science course for the physics department. So I'm also very interested in those Let's uh, education material. Let's do that. Yes. And suddenly, what have you been up to? I saw you in a, in a stream this week. Oh, yeah. You mean the Young Academy? The Young Academy. Hey, yeah. hey. We got some, we got some people uh, from high-ranking places in our podcast. Uh, yeah, it was the installation ceremony. It was online. Couldn't be others. And uh, I, I really enjoyed actually watching the videos of the people in my uh, year. Uh, they are from all over the disciplines. And I really look forward to working with these uh, extremely ambitious and talented people. Good. And I saw so you also made the case about science doing something for the environment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that I don't spell it. You have to watch the video. It's only three minutes. If you want, you can watch it. But there was another rabbit hole I was actually going through in the past months. And it all started with this news item about uh, Field Lab. 
and uh, it was about I saw it in the news for the first time that they are going to do experiments with events and spread of corona. So, wow, interesting. This yeah, is, I remember this. Yeah, this is really what open science and citizen science can become. That you do experiments yeah. on people and use this evidence for policy for decisions. And I say yes, I really want to know more about this. But the more I search, actually, the less I found. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm still searching, so uh, please help if you know more. In the age of the internet, that's a, that's that's a, a very disturbing sign. <laughs> well, I mean, I I understand that this is a sort of a difficult time. Uh, so what I was very much interested in is that are the hypotheses of this experiment pre-registered? Because from the descriptions, I see that this is an experiment on many groups. There are several hypotheses to be tested. From the you know the, the story that you hear, it seems that they are trying to uh, do it very nicely with a lot of control uh, people condition. But at the end, it's all about small numbers. You know, you get fifty hundred people together, and then yeah. hopefully only one or two become sick, or maybe not even. But then, how, how do you know that your conclusions are statistically relevant? This usually becomes much more trustable and uh, explainable if the hypotheses of these experiments are registered. So I thought this must be registered somewhere, but I couldn't yeah. find. You at least should be able to find out who is doing the research and with what intentions and what, what questions exactly, because that is completely unclear to me in a lot of these cases. Yeah, there was some interviews, so there are scientists involved clearly with this, but I could not mm -hmm. reach them. So maybe if we emphasize that, and that's why I actually talked to Daniel Lackens. I'm not myself a statistician, but Daniel Lackens is, and he has a course on uh, improving the statistical inferences. So I asked him actually why pre-registration of such experiments is an important uh, step in doing such big experiments, which we can hear now. Hi, Daniel. Oh, thank you for taking the time to answer my questions. Uh, before asking those, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, no problem. Um, so my name is Daniel Lackens. I work as an associate professor at Eindhoven, University of Technology. My background is an, as experimental psychologist. In the last eight years or so, I've worked a lot on methods, statistics, research practices, thinking how we can make uh, science more reliable and more efficient. Okay, here is my first question. What is pre-registration and why is it so important? Mm. So when you design a study where you'll analyze the data using statistical analyses, there's always a bunch of options that you have. How, how will you treat the data? How will you screen it for outliers? How will you analyze the data? What are you going to report? And what we've seen in the past is that if there's a lot of flexibility there, maybe to pick the exact measure that you'll report, um, maybe you'll look at uh, how many people get sick, but maybe you'll look at how long it takes for people to get sick, or maybe how many people get very severely sick, or, you know, you have a couple of options how to analyze data. That's always the case. What we've seen in the past is that people sometimes selectively report things that give the answer that they were looking for. So there's risk of bias. The goal of pre-registration is to think very carefully before you collect the data, how you'll analyze it and what the key thing is you want to learn. And you basically register. So you write this down somewhere. 
your statistical analysis plan before the data is collected and you make this public so that people can look at it whenever they want to and they can check if you followed it through and sometimes there can be very good reasons to deviate from whatever you planned because you know the real world is always messy and different than you expected but at least people can transparently evaluate uh, the tests that you planned and the tests that you report and does it have any special significance for social studies that uh, can be circumstantial such as in a pandemic for example hmm well In a way, you could say that um, it is especially important for uh, studies where the outcome has a lot of weight and where we're not going to do it multiple times, indeed. Um, the way that it works in any study is that there's a risk that the conclusion that you observe has an error, like it's an erroneous conclusion for randomness or sometimes in the past because people actually sort of increased the possibility of finding a fluke by repeatedly looking at their analysis. So I would say especially for studies that you're only going to do once and then have real life consequences, you really want to um, control this risk of an error very carefully and that's exactly what um, pre-registration of your statistical analysis plan does. Otherwise what we do in science is sometimes just repeat the analysis four or five times or something and we hope that then eventually you figure it out uh, but that's not an efficient process. Ah, that's really interesting. It's always good to have people like Daniel Lackens around who are available to uh, comment on these things. And uh, what I also like, I think people should follow him on Twitter if you don't already, because he also likes to look up like the original articles about statistics and about uh, research methods. And he comes up with these things like said by Popper that are completely contradictory to what we're doing nowadays. I really love that. I like stuff about also the, what the alpha and the beta uh, are, why they are 5% and, and 80% is... This is really something to follow. Um, maybe sticking to COVID, what I found very interesting is that a couple of guys from, uh, guys and girls, sorry, from um, uh, Stanford, they were able to crack the DNA sequence of the Moderna vaccine. Did you hear about this? No, I completely missed it. How did they yeah. do that? Well, they, 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 they did some experiments on it and they did a genetic analysis and they just, they found out what the, uh, what the genomic sequence is. So I hope... Uh, that maybe uh, in places where the Moderna vaccine is not really uh, within reach, people might be able to use this in some way. Yeah. Is this piracy? Uh, so I don't know. It's not I, my I, jurisdiction. <laughs> But I thought it was interesting anyway. It is very And interesting, yeah. There's a very big discussion, right, on in the time of pandemic, is it actually okay to put patents on vaccines? That's, uh, that's a big question that ethicists yeah. are discussing. And there was another development on the, the interwebs. Uh, I saw that Google had a new plugin. What's that all about? Yeah, yeah, it has actually made a lot of uh, buzz. Uh, on the Google Scholar profile, there is now a bar that shows how many of your articles are mandated to be open access by the funders. So it really doesn't check if your article is open access or not. It just checks who has been the mentioned funding in the article. And mm -hmm. what is the policy of that funder? Oh, I see. It's sort of a nudge, and I think generally could be a very good nudge uh, up to this scale that says, you know, these articles, according to your funders, should have been uh, open access. So everybody can go and check if their, you know, the bar is completely green or there's some yellow part in it. But then there comes the second part that actually has created a lot of discussion because Google says, 
Well, if your article is not available somewhere, or if you could not find it at Google, maybe you can just drop the PDF in Google Drive. And yeah, I think this is the part that have made a lot of people upset because, yeah, it's, you know, research geared all over again. Yeah, and then I guess that when you upload it to Google, you can find it through Google, but not through other search engines, right? Yes, and also a lot of these founder mandates are not only about the PDF. Uh, what about mm-hmm. the metadata? What about the references? Right? Yeah. Just putting yeah. a PDF does not completely define making it open access. But it's a good right step. You think, I was also talking to uh, Bianca Kramer from the University Library, and she said that uh, the way they find out whether it's uh, connected to a funder is just text scrolling. So it might even be that the funder is just mentioned in the article. And then it's already indicated uh, in the the column of uh, funder mandated open access, which is really like a sloppy way to do it, right? I know, I know. It's not perfect. It's not perhaps has a lot of uh, pitfalls. It's Google Scholar and, you know, the reach is big. It reminds mm-hmm. me a little bit like, you know, we know McDonald's is perhaps not the most healthy food, but the salad at McDonald's for many people is, you know, just the, the most affordable uh, source of vitamins that you can get around and healthy food. So I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, but it's yeah. a big move. Yeah, but maybe if if you t- take m- maybe McDonald's, this is like the McSalad of McDonald's or another uh, home food uh, uh, c- comparison, I think you should uh, maybe take the thuisbezorgd approach that I'm using now. So when I want to order in some food, I know that if I order it from thuisbezorgd, that's going to be take like 30% of the proceeds go to thuisbezorgd instead of the restaurant, uh, which really puts the restaurant at a disadvantage. So nowadays I look up what I want to have and then I just call up the restaurant directly and order with them. You can do that here as well. So if you find out that you have an article that that could be open access, upload it to Narcissus or to your institutional repository so it will be available for everybody. See, we're yeah. making the world a little bit better a step at a time, Sandy. Yes, that is good. I like your approach, Siko. <laughs> now, so um, th- there was a nice uh, report that came out about how the Netherlands is going to get to 100% open access in the near future. And there was actually a very interesting part in this uh, report, uh, which was uh, about the diamond approach. So this is more the platform-like approach where communities come together and they have their own place in which to exchange uh, articles instead of going through one of the bigger uh, bigger uh, journals. And uh, this actually was something that was really, really required to have some kind of an overview on this because apparently there are an enormous amount of these types of platforms, much more than we actually thought. And a lot of this, uh, the journal, the articles that are in these platforms are not in the uh, general overviews and don't count as open access yet, even though they are. And they are often dependent on like institutional approaches. So uh, maybe a university pays for these platforms and uh, it puts out the scope of this entire field that, that it's just much bigger than everybody thought. And it might be a very valuable way of getting to open access. So not through the bigger publishers, but actually through these more, uh, well, community-based approaches which i find very interesting we'll put this in the show notes okay so what is it about more about the costs or about the the reach of these platforms Uh, both but it does show that it's like an ecosystem that's a little bit fragile because if you suddenly an institute stops paying for a platform like this it can be become dangerous so we need a bigger overarching strategy from uh, maybe universities or from the government that is true i know from sitting on the 
department library committee that we wanted to actually support one of these uh, associations who has a diamond uh, journal or platinum they call it and <laughs> platinum <okay. laughs> and it was very difficult because the library says well it's not a journal it's an association and the department was said well it's all about publishing so it's a job of the library so it didn't have an owner in the system of university and it took many discussions to be able to find out how we can actually support this platform which many of our researchers actually publish in and we trust it has actually very high impact papers and i'm talking yeah. about SciPost, of course of course you are Coming up, we are going to talk to Rens van der Schot about automated systemic text review by using deep learning and active learning. And so in the virtual studio with us is Rens van der Schot, and uh, we're going to be talking to him about the electronic learning assistant and about something called ASR. But first, Rens, could you please shortly introduce yourself and tell you how you were drawn into open science? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Um, so my name is Rens van der Schoot. I'm full professor at the Department of Methods and Statistics at the Faculty of Social Sciences. Um, normally I work with Bayesian statistics and um, uh, actually this AS Review project uh, or originated as a side project, but now it dominates my life, so to say. <laughs> but later on more about that project because you, 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 your question was about how I was drawn into the, the open science that's actually a good question because it's already many years ago that I wondered myself why publications cannot be read by uh, people outside the academic environment. And so it all started with open access, actually, of, of journal articles, which is nowadays maybe not so important anymore because of the big deals with Elsevier. We have um, mostly uh, the, the people in the Netherlands have access to um, our journal articles. But that's not the case for people in South Africa, for example. So I also have an affiliation in South Africa at the Van der Park University, uh, the Northwest University. It is. They don't have access to our papers because they don't have the big deal agreements with Elsevier and other big publishers. So they still have to pay for uh, most of our articles. Um, yeah. So that was actually the start. Why I wondered. I, w I was in South Africa and they could not access their own papers. And that's weird. That's not fair. So you do you pay for your article to be published, but you cannot read it. That's that's weird, isn't it? I, I mean, it it's is. your work. It's yours. That is very strange. But did you say that the 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 ASR review was a side project that came out of a bigger project, but now has become the major project you work on? Yeah. So I was working on a on a paper, uh, the use of Bayesian statistics in the field of psychology in the last twenty five years. Um, and as many review uh, researchers, uh, I performed the systematic search, and I found way too many papers to to read. So I first screened the um, the abstracts, and I was screening abstracts already for more than a week. So I found I don't know thousands of papers, and then Daniel Oberski um, uh, walked into my office, and I asked him, Daniel, can't we build a machine? to screen all those articles for me and then he said yes so we started with a with a very little project uh, funded by the uh, ITS department uh, with a um, uh, fund for prototype development and we actually started this research project and and now since i think a year or so we have software up and running that can be used by anyone and it's open uh, open science so every everything is on github yeah and so to make it very concrete what can i do with asr so Whenever you have to screen a large amount of text, 
that can be the case of systematic reviewing. So you do a search, you want to know everything about a certain topic. You find, I don't know, let's say 20,000 articles and only a very small fraction of that pile of abstracts is relevant to you. Let's say only 30 abstracts are, or 30 papers are actually relevant to your, your field. So how to reduce the 20,000 papers you find in the first step of your search to the 30 abstracts you actually want to use in your study. That's, that's an enormous amount of work. So what the software does, it simply reorders the pile of abstracts from most to least relevant. You pick the abstract on top, you read it, and it's either relevant or irrelevant to you. You feed that back into the system, it reorders the abstracts from most to least relevant. You read the top of the list, etc. And at some point you it's have basically Tinder, but then for abstracts. Ah, it's exactly Tinder. <laughs> so so almost two years ago, I, I gave this presentation and I was was there on a podium. Remember before Corona, when you can, could still actually present to an audience live in the room? So I hold my phone up and I said, oh, we need Tinder for abstracts. You can actually find exactly this sentence. Wait, wait, wait. Can well, you also uh, swipe left and right? I have never used Tinder, but I've heard that's very important. So you know to swipe, but you didn't use Tinder. That's interesting. So it's left accepts the dates. <laughs> that was a tricky now, question. I know this because I use the app Kinder, which is Tinder mm -hmm. but for children's names. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, so 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 we're now collaborating with um, some external companies, so uh, for um, uh, um, including uh, Microsoft Azure, that we're going to use um, the, the Azure platform actually to run it on a cloud platform, and then you can indeed uh, run it on your smartphone. So. If you have a server up and running yourself, you can actually um, employ it on a server and, and use your smartphone to uh, to screen. You have a server. So, but I mean, Google also somehow, the scholar service of Google somehow do, does that. Is this information that goes back based on the information on one person searching for information? Or is there also the correlation between all different people searching for information considered in this uh, service of yours? Yeah, so the, so the latter case is what Scholar Google does. So you search something in Scholar Google based on your search and similar searches by other people in the world. They present you with a list of, of papers. What we do is you first search yourself in a database with keywords. You extract a database with 20,000 papers and you have to go through all those papers to find the relevant ones. You never go through all the results provided you, to you by Scholar Google. You only look at the first three or four, or maybe the first page, or maybe the second page. So the goal for systematic reviewing is to go through all the papers to find the relevant ones. And the relevant paper can be hidden on the last page of Scholar Google. It can, yes. And so this year saw an enormous explosion, or actually 2020 saw an explosion of publications. Uh, namely on COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And you actually launched an initiative called uh, ASR Against COVID-19. What, what was specific about that uh, little publication there? Yeah, so, so we got a little grant to incorporate the COVID-19 database. And the COVID-19 database is a database developed by the, by the LNAI Institute in, uh, uh, by order of the White House. And that database contains all the publications of corona-related papers. So it's, it's also including the older SARS and Merma papers. And we integrated the COVID-19 database, which is now automatically updated daily. 
So every day you can search within AS Review using this active learning pipeline for the most relevant articles about Corona. Um, and many people are actually using it, um, including um, uh, people that are developing medical guidelines. I see. And and so a drawback of doing a podcast is, of course, that people can't see you. But behind you on your blackboard in your room are actually all kinds of graphs, which you've told me that have something to do with ASR, AS Review. Yes. Yeah. So the graphs you see on my on my blackboard are what we call recall curves. So if you already have performed a systematic search, so you have gone through the pile of 20,000 studies, you provided labels, relevant, irrelevant ones. And then we can perform a systematic review, or sorry, we can perform a simulation study to find out how the active learning pipeline would have worked for you, how much time you could have saved using active learning. Um, and we've run already hundreds of such simulation studies. Um, and sometimes uh, it appears that you can save 95% of your time when you would have used active learning. So only reading 5% of the articles is enough to find the relevant ones. Oh, wow. That can save you a lot, a lot of time. Yeah, so talking about time, what is often complained, or at least a, a point of feedback from people who create, for example, an algorithm that is publicly available, uh, is that you tend to get a lot of user questions and people nagging you and emailing you because they want you to change something in that system or have questions. Uh, have you had the similar experience or has it been quiet on the telephone line? No, I never receive emails. No. <laughs> don't you open them or no. don't you ever receive them? <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to open your emails. Yeah, that's a good thing. No, so <laughs> so we try to, to establish an open science community. So actually... The, the policy in our group, so I'm not doing this by myself. There are 15 people working within Utrecht University on this project. Uh, we have people from the, the, the applied data science community. We have people from the library, the information specialists. We have uh, software engineers, research engineers from the IT department. Um, so there are many people from, from the entire university involved in, in our project, uh, uh, scientific staff, uh, uh, supporting staff. Um, it's actually a huge research project. So often people think that we are a software project, but we're a research project. So we're interested in algorithms. So instead of, of having one algorithm programmed, we have a dozen algorithms. And if someone has a new algorithm they want to implement, feel free to do so. It's an open science project. So uh, people ask us questions, not via email, but on, on, on our open science platform, GitHub. They, they make an issue, we try to answer it, or actually the open science community helps to answer those questions. People um, make a pull request with, with new data sets that can be tested with new algorithms. So I honestly do not get so many emails about this project. Nice. This sounds like a very smart solution. Yeah, uh, so I have a question because normally when you want to have a project with 15 people, you know, you have to put a big consortium, you have to go through this you know, uh, several rounds of interviews, 15 is a huge number. Uh, it takes a year uh, before you even get, you know, your first uh, step uh, possible. And now it seems like totally the opposite. People come and just work for your ideas. How do you compare this process with, with all the other proposals that probably have started from the idea and waited for another year or two to be able to begin working on those ideas? Yeah, so, so the trick is to not only apply for grants, what I also did and still do, but also just start. 
because if you if you don't start you can apply for grants forever and then you never start and then you have to wait for this big grant to to start so we started really small with just two or three people and then it's growing and growing and growing um, and people invest in in ASV view either by men hours or woman hours is that a word even but let's um, just say hour <laughs> hours labor hours and also github is know. also full of projects which you know only have one contributor even one year after so not every project that you make open suddenly you know explodes there must be something else also in the project that attracts so many people yeah but 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 you have to realize that if you use this pipeline you can save so much of your time so for example we were collaborating with the, the knowledge institute of the federation medical specialists they had to develop medical guidelines during the corona pandemic and still within days weeks time so they have to read all the literature on a specific topic to develop guidelines and make decisions how are they going to to read all that literature they have to do something so the relevance for this project is is now recognized by anyone that has to go through a large pile of of of, of so open is not enough but it should also matter the topic of project it should matter yes and and realize that an open source project just putting your code somewhere that's not going to work you need documentation we have more than than 150 pages of documentation that's how many publications are that i mean uh, i could also have published Oh, I do publish. Yeah, maybe maybe we can uh, can get around to that point. So you you're saying, a bit jokingly, I could also have published. And of course, uh, these publications are uh, are nowadays still seen as the major currency of academia. And um, in our new system of recognition and reward, it is at least the aim to change this to become more pluriform. But how have you been rewarded and recognized for this by your own community at the Utrecht University? How have your 15 colleagues been uh, rewarded? Yeah, so this is a difficult question. Um, and I'm going to be honest here. So this is not a political correct answer to, 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 to your question. Bring it on. I'm lucky. I have a permanent position. I have published, I don't know, uh, 150 papers or something. I, I lost count. It doesn't matter for me. No. Just one more publication would not change my career. So it's easy for me to, to completely change my work, actually, and start working on an open science project and publish as an, 150 pages of the documentation on Zenodo. That wouldn't count for a classical CV. But for people who just start in academia, this is a very tricky route because you need your publications. Uh, that's pretty interesting point you mentioned because if I try to compare the ratio of the people who engage in open science practices among the people with temporary jobs, PhDs, postdocs, and the people with permanent jobs, I think the ratio is quite clear that the younger generation without job security actually engage much more. And you are, I would say you yeah. do it, and I really appreciate that, but you are one of the few who say, you know, I'm secure, I'm going to do all open science. Uh, so how can we sort of convince more people with job security to just take the initiative and do it the way it fits? I think it's a bottom-up approach. I, I mean, I was intrigued by the, the younger people in, in our team. For example, Jonathan de Bruyne, who, who works for the, the ITS department, he just told me, Rens, put everything on GitHub with an open license so that everyone can use it. And then I slept 
not so well for a couple of nights. <laughs> because if you put everything open on the internet with an open access code, so, does, so, so with an open license, so that everyone can use it and make profit out of it. Wow. That's, that's, that's a thing. But if he would have not raised this issue with me, I would have never dared to even do this. So this is a bottom-up approach. So indeed, the younger people, the younger generation is just doing this and forcing the more senior people to also change their, their publication style. But it are the, 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 the secured people at our department and, and faculty and university who really have to do this. And they have to realize and understand it's not so easy. It's not just, oh, put your code somewhere. That's it. No, you need documentation. And the documentation yeah. is, is, is an equal amount of work as, 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 as writing another paper. These are valuable lessons you're teaching us here, Rens. I, I hope our listeners are invigorated by it as well. Uh, I also would like to ask you one final question, maybe as a reflective point on uh, on the current period and uh, the and, uh, and last year. Um, it seems like in some way open science has taken a flight during the COVID-19 pandemic, but you see that some things change for the positive and sometimes also for the negative. What are you... To you, in your opinion, the most valuable lessons we learned last year about open science? I think that we should just give it a try. Remember when the, 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 the government decided to develop this app openly and how many mistakes they made and, and, and people laughed about it, but we learned so much and they just did it. And I think that's the major lesson. Just do it, make mistakes and help each other. Thank you very much for that, Rens. That was a very nice conversation with Rens. What's your takeaway, Siko? Yeah, well, my takeaway here is that I really like the fact that we came to speak about team science and to, to, to show that doing a, a huge project like this, it, 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 it's based on the collaborative work of a lot of people in different places and on different levels. So within Utrecht University, there's research software engineers and there's, there's Rens and his team and uh, there's senior engineers in there. And But there's also this broader community around the world of people contributing to algorithms as, that do these things. And it really shows you that the, the, the model of just prescribing credits to one person in this, is, is, it's just no, no longer a viable and sane way mm. to go it, it, it's i really love the fact that it's a collaborative thing i also like that he he was very honest about the hesitation of starting the project and all yeah. the you know difficulties also you know mental uh fixations that you have to overcome to start it but once you start it it's such a pleasure that just flows and if i look at his website you know says this is the biggest project he's actually doing right now yeah <laughs> which is a very useful project it is. And this is the type of things we're, we're going to be discussing in uh, more episodes in the coming uh, coming months. This is really what I like most ab about open science. It shows you that there's a lot of people work in it. And this is, uh, this is where the fun happens, you know. Uh, so what's on the schedule for the next episode of The Road to Open Science? Yeah, so last year uh, there was a fund awarded to uh, four groups for stimulating open science practices. And uh, next episode we're going to be speaking with one of those projects. And I cannot tell you which one yet because we want to keep that a surprise oh okay exciting off we go Siko. yes to the next time and beyond <laughs> i have to open my wings which button should i press you've been listening to the road to open science podcast the road to open science is an initiative from the utrecht young academy and supported by the open science platform at utrecht university 
This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date. Okay, Renz. We don't let you go before we ask you a very, very important question. What's your guilty pleasure in open science? Nah. <laughs> My guilty pleasure. Well, GitHub has some nice features to, to track the activity of, uh, of the team members. So you can actually uh, see how active they are and at what time of the day and, and, and week. So um, I always have one screen open with the... Uh, the, the the team member page and how wow. active my team members are, but don't don't tell anyone. So it's it's also it's, it's like a GitHub anyone. dashboard. <laughs>